Hello and welcome to this month's episode of Mibby's Eye. I'm Fiona McGregor and I'm here with my co-host Marlene Halliday from the Indie Life podcast team. This month we're going to be looking at one of the key topics from the 2014 referendum and that is pensions. What happens after independence? We've got a, a really good presentation by Tim Rideout of the Scottish Currency Group. It was a, a meeting that was held so there's some questions and I think you'll find us really useful. Now, if we were going to be asked to guess what the top three issues are going to be in the campaign to come, I'm pretty sure pensions would be up there. Yes, indeed. Because we know from back in 2014, understandably, people had concerns and, and worries, fears about their pensions. Would they still get it? What would happen to it? And, and we also know, 2014, that the No campaign played on those fears they really kind of went to town with them. So there are a few other uh, examples where that happened as well. I mean, here we are. We, we know Scottish government are taking forward their, their push for a, a referendum at the end of next year. Fingers crossed for that. But it's clear that there are some topics that will be in the forefront of the campaign. They'll be put in the forefront of the campaign by the no, the unionist side. We've got to be prepared to kind of meet those head on. Pensions is one of them. And I think this talk is not the final answer, but it's got a, such a lot of good information in it and it's presented really straightforwardly by Tim. There was a bit of polling going on in it and um, Tim got people, asked people in the audience to say that they have a state pension just now, did, did they maybe have you know, private pensions? It was very interesting just how many categories there are. They included people who are public sector workers, state pensioners in yeah. Scotland, people who move between England and Scotland with armed forces. Yeah, We've got the Scottish devolved civil service, the UK government civil service, which are things like DWP and you know Inland Revenue, which are a lot of people in Scotland employed in that. And also private pensions and whether it's a, a self-invested pension, whether you work for a company or in Scotland or, or abroad. The other thing that's fascinating is just listening as the questioning kind of shows how people's thinking transforms through the course of the discussion from, well, that's not fair, to, oh, yeah, I see yeah. The, lo the logic of that. And I yeah. think it's a really important campaigning point to have clear in our minds. In fact, it's probably the most important campaigning point for, for that question. There's a lot of people who think that uh, the state pension is a legal contract between you and the government and that the, the state is required to pay your pension. And in fact, that's not the case. This, uh, this isn't a contract. It's what's known as an entitlement. So an entitlement is something where the state agrees to pay you something in return for some, something that you have done, paying your taxes, for example, or in this case, paying national insurance. But it's an entitlement, which means the state can withdraw that entitlement if it wishes to, or it can amend the entitlement. Uh, so unemployment benefit, for example, is another entitlement. Uh, statutory sick pay is an entitlement. All that the government would have to do to change your entitlement is to pass legislation in Parliament at Westminster. You know, they have done that multiple times. So the Waspy women, for example, lost out on five years' worth of pension because the government changed the law. Uh, and uh, the state pension age has been raised twice and is going to be raised again 
in the future. So those are all changes to the entitlement that are made without your agreement. So it isn't a legal contract. As pensions became a hot topic um, in the last few weeks, then uh, there were a lot of people saying that uh, the UK would have to pay the pension after independence. Uh, but that isn't the legal position. They can change the law and exclude us if they wanted to do so. The state pension is a critical issue. There's uh, 980,000 people receiving the state pension in Scotland at the moment. And obviously all the rest of us think we're going to get it, or most of the rest of us think we're going to get it uh, in the future. The people in receipt of the state pension is about 25% of the voters. So if we upset them somehow over pensions, then that probably results in us losing the independence referendum. The only sensible option for the UK state pension is to say unequivocally that the Scottish government will take over the state pension from Independence Day uh, and will start paying it in full uh, with whatever people are entitled to uh, at that point. Uh, and obviously, if you're already getting the pension, they'll just carry on paying uh, that pension. Uh, anything else as a proposition for the referendum, you know, saying that we think, you know, if you go down the route, Ian Blackford went down of saying that he thinks London should pay, that introduces a question mark uh, because London, all, you know, the, the no side, all they have to do is say, we won't pay. And now you've got a question mark in the minds of pensioners. Am I going to get my pension or will I not get the pension uh, if I vote for independence? And you really can't afford to do that. So I think the, any argument about should the UK pay or should it not pay uh, in advance of a referendum is a, is a losing strategy because it gives the, gives the ball to the, the no, no campaign that allows them to raise a doubt in people's minds about you know, is, the, is there going to be a state pension or isn't there going to be a state pension. If we look at the practicalities of the state pension, there is no fund, there's no investments, there's no assets. Uh, the National Insurance Fund is a bit of a contract because all that happens is that the National Insurance is collected each month, paid into an account at the Bank of England called the National Insurance Fund, and the pensions are paid out of it. And uh, as a result, the balance in the fund in that account is usually never more than about 20 billion, which is around two months worth uh, of payments. It has actually been in surplus uh, in the past, but uh, that doesn't remain the case for very long because the Chancellor just helps himself to any surplus and transfers it to the Consolidated Fund for General Expenditure. So in terms of that national insurance, uh, if we look at the JERS figures, which the unionists love, uh, and I'm deliberately using their data because then they can't argue with it, the estimate is that uh, national insurance in Scotland in 2020 was what was paid in by us was 11 and a half billion pounds. And the cost of the state pension in Scotland was eight and a half billion. And uh, the other money went on things like uh, statutory sick pay, statutory redundancy pay, uh, and um, uh, maternity pay and paternity pay. Uh, but that was only two and a half billion. So there was actually 500 million or so left over out of um, the national insurance that we paid. So. It's perfectly clear as a result that uh, even using the JERS figures that uh, the Scottish government is well able to pay a state pension you know, as of Independence Day. So there's no reason to have any argument about it. There's no question that we have enough money to pay the pension. I mean, I don't like that narrative anyway, because uh, the state always has the money to, to pay uh, what it wishes to pay. We can just do it. And it's not difficult. 
because the only two things that we need in order to take over the state pension uh, is the Department of Work and Pensions database on you know, how many years entitlement you've built up. So do you have the full 35 years or not? Uh, we'd need a list of the pensions in payment and the bank account details for who they're going to. And we need to know who is legally domiciled in Scotland on Independence Day. So that's whether you're living here or not. Uh, so it's just two bits of information we need, and then we can uh, just take it over. I would rename it and call it the Scottish Universal Pension going forward. Now, what happens after Independence Day? Well, anyone who, for example, moves from England to Scotland after independence, they would be in the position of somebody who moves to Spain. So they're then going to continue getting their pension paid by the UK government in the same way as they would pay the pension of someone who went to Spain or Portugal or elsewhere. In the reverse direction, if somebody from Scotland gets a, you know, decides to move south of the border after independence, the same situation would apply in that the Scottish government would be liable for paying their pension if they've moved abroad. And that would apply whether you'd went to Canada, England, you know, Australia or anywhere else. If uh, you change job and you have, say, 10 years contributions to the Scottish state pension scheme, and then you move to England and you build up 25 years of contributions to the English state pension, uh, then you'd get some money from both schemes. Uh, it would be perfectly possible for the Scottish government and the UK government to put in place some sort of mechanism similar to what exists between the Republic of Ireland and the UK which would allow people to transfer their pension entitlement from one country to the other one. But that's not guaranteed. It doesn't have to, to happen. Now, the state pension uh, is, is really a bit of a non-issue because uh, we'll just take it over. Quite simple, very little admin, and we'll just pay it going forward. And it's already the SNP's policy uh, to try to increase that pension to the Euro European average, which would be about £300 per week per person as soon as possible after independence. Probably not in one big jump, but uh, you know, above inflation increases each year until we get it up to the, the EU average. Is that a pan-European scheme that we would join, or are you talking about just a unilateral UK-Scotland? I think it's probably on the basis of you know, individual state to individual state, but you know, we can use the agreement with Ireland as a template you know, to build on. Obviously, you know, it's not terribly effective or efficient for people to have you know, a few years pension from half a dozen different countries. It'd be better probably to consolidate it into one pension from one country. Uh, but that's something that would have to be negotiated between. The option would be either we could have our own system negotiated with the UK, or depending on where we go in terms of EU membership, we could apply a European system. Yes, well, I think if, if there is an EU system for transferring pensions, then we would obviously join if we're in EFTA or whether we're in the EU. But we'd have to negotiate a, a specific deal with the UK since they're not in the EU anymore. Um, and that could be similar to uh, the EU template or the Irish template. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm an EU citizen living in, in Scotland. Uh, I have a small pension from Denmark and, and that just gets paid out now uh, that I'm in receipt of state pension here. So there's not been any problems with that even though we have left the, the EU. But some people that live in Scotland consider themselves English, 
would they then get paid from the UK or from Scotland? No, the, the citizenship has nothing to do with pensions. It's all about uh, your uh, contribution record. Polish plumber working in the UK bill and paying national insurance builds up a record of uh, you know number of years contributed. If they get to 10 years, then they're entitled to a UK pension even after they move back to Poland. Somebody who is English, uh, if they are living in Scotland on Independence Day, they would be switched to the Scottish state pension. Uh, if they move to Scotland after Independence Day, then they would get whatever entitlement they have under the English scheme. Uh, if they work in Scotland and they build up a sufficient contribution record to a, the Scottish pension scheme, then they would also get a Scottish pension. Well, not a full one, but they'd, they'd get however much they were entitled to. Yeah, but we are all paying in a UK pension scheme at the moment. Yes, but you will... As of Independence Day, you would leave the UK scheme if you're resident in Scotland, yes. But what if you don't want to leave the UK? I don't think you're going to have a choice. You'd have to move south of the border. At the moment, there are pensioners living in Canada and Australia who are living in penury because their, their pensions were stopped at a certain level the moment they left Britain to go to wherever it is. There are pensioners in Canada existing on... They have 30 pounds a week and stuff like this. How would that work with the Scottish pensions? Well, that was an improvement made by Mrs Thatcher in 1981, which was uh, vindictive and spiteful, if you ask me. It's very unfair because some countries you get the annual inflation increase and other countries you don't. There's no justification whatsoever for saying, like my mother in South Africa, that uh, she doesn't she doesn't get an increase because, I don't know, for some reason the UK doesn't like South Africa, uh, whereas if she was in Portugal she would get an in increase. I would be very surprised if the Scottish Government distinguished between Scots abroad and those in, the, in Scotland. They would all get the same annual increase. Could you just, for my benefit, quickly run through what happened in Ireland and, and is there a, a special case for them with the state pensions? There's just a reciprocal agreement that you know, if, if somebody, for, if an Irish national moves to the UK, they can transfer their pension entitlement out of the Irish scheme and into the UK scheme and vice versa. Right. You can, you can do that with the Isle of Man as well, which is, you know, I'm from the Isle of Man. They would get the pension based on what they've paid into insurance in Ireland, they'd still get it here. Yes, but it would be paid at the UK rate. Gov UK states clearly that state pension is still payable if you live abroad. Why would people in Scotland be treated differently from those in any other country outside our UK? Yeah, well, this is, this is the, the argument that some people put forward and which Ian Blackford was putting forward. Anyone who thinks that the, the UK would, take, you know, would carry on paying the pensions for the next 40 years for 5.5 million people in Scotland after we've chosen to become independent, you know, the, the, that's a dream world. It's just not going to happen. There's a moral argument that says that they took the national insurance contributions and therefore they should pay the money. But in the sort of realpolitik that it, they just aren't going to do that. There isn't an investment fund. There's no, you know, your national insurance contributions from this year have been spent this year on other people's pensions. And I think there's a, there's a fairness element to it as well in that uh, uh, the national insurance that we pay in is immediately paid out to those who are getting a pension at the moment. When Scotland becomes independent, we will take over the tax. So the national insurance, we'll get the 11 and a half billion that's paid in and we can well afford then to pay out the pensions for the people in Scotland. It would be particularly perverse for us to say that we're going to take the tax revenue 
of the national insurance, but you can pay the pension. I don't think that's a very productive argument. And more importantly, you know, you need to think about this here. The, the key issue is the case in the independence referendum. So if you're going to say that, well, the UK should pay the state pension after independence, and they're going to say, no, we won't, now you've raised a doubt. And everyone receiving the state pension, all 980,000 of them, plus the rest of us who think we're going to get it in the future, you've now allowed the no side to raise a doubt about whether we are or are not going to get a pension. And that way, you just lose the referendum. So it's a stupid argument to get into, regardless of any sort of morality uh, 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 around it. But if you take the example, supposing someone worked, lived in Scotland all their life and worked 30 years before independence and then 10 years after independence, um, they would have 30 years of entitlement under the UK pension system and then 10 years of entitlement under the Scottish system. Um, and it's possible that the UK government might want to appoint the new Scottish Department of Work and Pensions to actually handle those payments. But the obligation for the first 30 years clearly still rests with the UK government. It would mean treating people in Scotland different from people in Spain. Well, yes, it, they, we are going to be treated differently to the people in Spain because uh, you know, we, as a country, are opting out of the UK. Uh, the people in Spain, you know, there might be individuals who've gone to live in Spain, but Spain was never part of the UK. If there was a big pot of money sitting somewhere that was the national investment fund like Norway has, the situation would be very different and you'd be able to claim 8% of the fund, but there isn't a fund. You know, what you're saying is that future taxpayers in England would have to pay pensions from people who have chosen to become part of a, a, an independent country. As I say, it's just not going to happen. And you know, you've still got the issue there that uh, you're going to have a big fight about it in the future. That's going to be played on in the independence campaign and for the referendum. What are you doing about the pension? Oh, well, England's going to have to pay. No, they won't. Yes, you will. No, we're, no, we're not going to. We're absolutely not going to. Uh, and you know, it's, just a, it's just a vote loser. So I wouldn't go there. We can perfectly well just take over the, you know, in your case there with the, somebody who has 30 years entitlement in the UK scheme that will just transfer into the Scottish scheme. They add another 10 years and they get a full Scottish state pension uh, when they retire. So very straightforward and uh, easy. It should be really obvious by now that the currency issuer controls what happens politically. And that's really seen with the, the uh, withdrawal of, of tests just now. So, you know, I really look forward to the day when, you know, Scotland is the currency issuer and I'm taking home my pension in the Scottish currency. I'm looking forward to that day. And I would hope everyone else here who wants independence does look forward to that day too. Well, I think um, more of an issue, uh, in fact, is uh, I'm suggesting that there probably has to be some sort of qualification period for maybe, say, a year before independence, that uh, you have to be resident in Scotland for that year to then transfer into the Scottish state pension and qualify for the Scottish pension. Because otherwise, uh, you could have a rush of people from down south moving to Scotland for a few weeks around independence on the basis that the Scottish government's going to put the state pension up and that way they'll be able to claim the Scottish pension at a higher rate than the UK one if they'd stayed put. So we, you don't want that sort of uh, benefit tourism. You know, I think it's quite clear that the Scottish government is going to raise the state pension uh, above the RUK level. Uh, so there's, you know, there's no reason for anyone to be hesitant about shifting from the, the UK scheme into the new Scottish one. 
the Isle of Man pays a, a state pension that is significantly higher than the UK one, so does the Republic of Ireland. We can uh, do quite a lot to reduce pension of poverty going forward. I, I've always been firmly of the opinion that uh, I paid all these contributions into the UK and they should damn well pay my pension. But I think the, the, the big problem with that, it becomes similar to NDRF when uh, Alex Hammond said there will be a currency union. And the UK said, no, there won't. That just became a brick wall that they kept bumping up against. Pensions would be the same in NDRF too. And, and I think the statement, just the way you made it, Scotland takes ownership of the taxes. Our national insurance already covers all our pensions. Pensions would be maintained from day one of independence by the Scottish government. It's clean and it doesn't allow Westminster to say no. So I, I think this is actually a benefit to the campaign as well as um, obviously to the individuals going forward. Absolutely correct. And uh, I think there is a quid pro quo uh, because in the negotiations, I would say to London, right, well, we're relieving you of the liability of the state pension. So saving you eight and a half billion a year on that. And therefore, you can take your national debt and shove it because we're not contributing. So it's not a case that they're sort of getting away with something. It's, it's, it's inevitable that we would take over the pension and we can use it as a bargaining chip to tell them that uh, the growth commission idea that we pay five billion a year towards the UK debt is just nonsense. Why on earth isn't the Scottish government and the SNP saying the same thing? <laughs> I think there's been insufficient thought. There's plenty of people who can, like me, who can tell them what the sensible policy is and the leadership just have to listen because it, they, these questions are not, they're not difficult. As with pensions, you know, for, for every, every one of these issues, we have to make sure that we do not give the advantage to the no side. So that you know, the same thing applies with currency, that uh, you know, your only sensible option, the one which can't be challenged, is that we will have our own currency as soon as possible, uh, which fortunately is actually SNP policy, despite what Andrew Wilson might say from time to time. There are approximately... 260,000 people in um, the local government uh, pension schemes and there's about 585,000 uh, in employed in the public sector most of whom will have a uh, public sector uh, pension so uh, that's 22% of the po of the working population are employed in the public sector uh, and it's interesting that uh, we've got about 35% of the audience who have some sort of uh, public sector pension Obviously, uh, some people move between the private sector and the public sector, so the number of people with uh, a public sector pension is going to be bigger than those currently employed in the, uh, the public sector. Uh, some people have a UK government pension. So that would be if you work for a central government department, so something like HMRC, uh, Department of Work and Pensions, those sort of things. Uh, there's uh, people who have been in the services would get an armed forces pension. Uh, and then we as you see we've got... Uh, a reasonable percentage having uh, a private sector final salary scheme, which these days uh, uh, a lot, most of those are now closed. So there's a, a cohort of people, mostly over 50, who do have a final salary pension uh, in the private sector, and then anyone under about 50 doesn't. Uh, and they've been pushed into money uh, purchase uh, schemes where what you get depends on the, the investment return. Obviously, we've got some people who have uh, personal pension, uh, and we've got some who already have uh, uh, cashed that in for an annuity because they're retired. And there's a few people who are just intending to use uh, savings.
So the Scottish public sector pension plans are already paid by the Scottish government. Some of them are funds like the local authorities, the Strathclyde Pension Fund, for example. Uh, the local authority schemes altogether have something like 50 billion of assets, uh, which pays the pensions. Uh, a lot of the other public sector pensions in Scotland, uh, for example, the Scottish Health Service, they're unfunded. The Scottish government just provides the funding each year to pay those pensions. So for all of the public sector, uh, the Scottish public sector schemes, uh, all those um, nearly 600,000 people uh, working in them, plus those who are retired, uh, the Scottish government deals with them already. So there's nothing to take over. It's already done through Holyrood. And all that will happen is that they will start to be paid in the new Scottish pound. You're not going to get a choice about that. It will be paid in Scottish pounds, whether you like it or not. In terms of UK government, central government uh, employees or retired employees, uh, then those are a liability of the UK. If you used to work for the Foreign Office or you still work for the Foreign Office uh, or Department of Work and Pensions or something like that, uh, then up and you know whatever your entitlement uh, or your legal contract says up until the date of independence uh, uh, in terms of what you're going to get as, or what you are getting or what you're going to get in the future as a pension uh, then that would be the responsibility of Westminster. The possible exception to that would be if some of those staff transfer to the employment of the Scottish Government uh, in which case the European Union's the, the TUPE uh, rules would I think provide for the pension entitlement to be transferred to the new employer and the UK would have to pay the Scottish government uh, the, the sort of liquidated cost uh, of what that future entitlement might be. The armed forces, you know, if you've served in the services, uh, then again, that's a liability of the UK government uh, and they would have to pay that. If you are a current service person and you transfer to the Scottish Defence Force, then again, the same thing could apply that you could transfer your uh, your pension and you could have to pay uh, towards that uh, into the uh, a, a new Scottish Armed Forces uh, pension. All the Scottish public sector pensioners, they don't have anything to worry about. Uh, there's no question about the, state, the pensions they're going to get, or do, they do get at the moment. The only difference is that they change to the Scottish pound, which is sensible because if you're living in Scotland, that's what you need to spend and you don't want to be getting your pension in a foreign currency. For the private sector schemes, then you're still going to get your pension. It's a contract between you and the employer, but uh, where the, the employer isn't based in Scotland, or at least the headquarters of the employer isn't in Scotland. So for example, if you worked for British Airways and you're part of the British Airways pension scheme, they're headquartered in London and you are probably going to get paid in sterling because uh, that's where they're based and you know, that's what they'll do. There might be some bigger employers who make a special arrangement that uh, people can ask for their pension to be paid in Scottish pounds instead. Um, but I think that probably is going to be the exception to the rule. A foreign headquartered company, well, that's probably maybe going to be a little bit different in that uh, uh, they're foreign anyway, so they'll be having to convert from their own currency into sterling to pay you, uh, so they might as well convert into Scottish pounds and pay you in Scottish pounds going forward. A private pension, and we've got a number of people who have some sort of private pension, going to depend a bit on where the pension provider is based. Uh, so if it's a Scottish pension provider, they should be able to set up um, the option to have your pension paid in Scottish pounds if you wish. 
Um, although I guess you'd have the choice, so you could choose to keep it in sterling or have it paid in Scottish pounds. If it's an English provider like Aviva, it's uncertain as to whether they would provide you with the option of having the pension converted into Scottish pounds or not. Uh, I suspect it's going to stay in sterling. And if you wanted to remove any exchange rate risk, then you could, you could probably transfer your pension fund to a Scottish provider instead. There are some people who do their own uh, investing in a, in a personal pension. And uh, the fund in that case, because the stock market is in London, all the investments are quoted in sterling. That is like that is going to stay in sterling. So at the point when you retire, your fund would be sterling and you would have the option of converting it into Scottish pounds and buying an annuity or drawdown pension in Scotland or keeping it in sterling. The public sector pension schemes, which are described as unfunded, um, which includes um, the NHS staff, teachers, firefighters, police and uh, the devolved section of the civil service pensions, they're unfunded, but uh, it's unfunded means that there isn't, there isn't uh, an investment fund. The contributions aren't paid into an investment fund. It's a pay-as-you-go pension, similar to where the, where the state pension is a pay-as-you-go system. But yeah. um, the members of that, those schemes all pay contributions, and the benefits paid by those schemes are paid out to the contribution income. The difference between that and the state pension, of course, is that uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a contract uh, between you and your employer, so you know, it's a legally binding agreement that you get the pension in the way that the state pension isn't. Uh, so the, you know, the Scottish government is required to pay you, regardless of whether independence happens or not. Uh, and you know, what you're going to get is very clearly defined. Uh, and if you didn't get it, you'd be able to sue them and you'd win. I can see Gareth has put a question in here that's about public sector pensions. So the teachers' pensions and so on. But the, I don't think that the government can just... You know, for example, half teachers' pensions by parts of passing legislation uh, to do so because it's, a, it's an employer-employee contract. Um, so they could change what the entitlements would be going forward in the future, um, but uh, they can't change what's happened in the past. So that's an argument around in the university superannuation scheme that the, the employers want to reduce uh, what you accrue from now on but they can't take away what you've already got. Most of the rules in the teacher's pension scheme are a statutory instrument, which does get changed from time to time. So, for example, just this year, they changed the rules so that instead of paying a fully inflationary increase um, linked to the various baskets, it was li the inflation increase was limited to 3.1% as per the state pension. So um, it, I, mean, I don't think they'd ever do anything stupid to remove all the vast entitlement because that would be incredibly controversial. But uh, in principle, the rules do get changed from time to time. They could change something like an inflation increase, but uh, if you've built up 30 years service um, and you've got another five years to go or 10 years or something like that, uh, I don't think that they can say that, uh, uh, you know, they're going to unilaterally reduce what you got from the 30 years you've already got, you already built up. It's been pretty standard practice over, over many years for employer-sponsored pension schemes and, and defined benefit pension schemes like the one I'm involved in uh, to change the benefit rules and the accrual rules from time to time. One of the most um, common ones is the changing the rules from a final salary defined pension to uh, what they call a career average. So these changes happen all the time in pension schemes. It's nothing new. 
No, but in the case of my wife, for example, in USS, uh, then she's got uh, what she had up until a few years ago, which is which is in the that's in the final salary part, and then uh, since they made the change, she's got another bit, which is in a career average part of the scheme. So you know, she didn't lose her final salary bit; she just stopped being able to add to it. There are quite a few people uh, here who do have some sort of uh, uh, UK government bonds or national savings certificates, premium bonds, things like that. Uh, I think I have uh, two pounds worth of premium bonds somewhere. There are quite a few of you who would, and maybe not surprising since you're all probably independent supporters, who would uh, cash in your UK government savings and transfer them uh, into uh, uh, Scottish government equivalents. So that's quite good because that's a, that's a benefit for the new currency. And obviously, if you do keep investments in sterling, then you're you're now going to have a, an exchange rate risk going forward. So you might gain, you might lose, uh, depending on whether Scottish pound stays the same, goes up or goes down uh, against uh, sterling. Personally, I suspect it's going to gradually increase slightly against sterling, but that's basically because of the, the mismanagement of the UK economy and its long-term uh, decline. Might be interested that... Uh, now, for example, in 1947, you got 25 Swiss francs to the pound, and today it's about one to one. So, you know, sterling going down is not, you know, it's a long-term 100-year trend, uh, and I suspect that will likely continue. Some people would uh, keep a, bit, a little bit in the UK and switch the rest. And in terms of cash, well, I think uh, most of you would just change, change whatever cash you've got uh, into uh, the Scottish pounds. Obviously, it's a self-selecting audience. Doesn't mean that much in terms of a, a genuine opinion poll, but um, you know, it's a straw in the wind. I think that when people say that the new currency would not be popular and therefore we have to use sterling and stuff like that, that they're probably wrong. So we've fairly comprehensively, I think, covered the state pension, which is the one that's going to affect everybody. There are a lot of people who don't have anything other than the state pension, uh, but for those. Uh, in the public sector, then you really don't have an issue. For most public sector people, the Scottish government's going to carry on paying your pension as they do at the moment. And there's a few people who used to work who, or who will have used to work for the UK where the UK would be paying their pension. Um, and in terms of private sector, it's a little bit more complicated because it depends largely where your employer is and whether they're going to carry on paying you in uh, sterling uh, or whether they would agree to switch it into the Scottish pound if you wanted to do that. Um, but I think for the, a lot of people, uh, they're probably going to get sterling and they're inevitably going to have some exchange rate risk. For people with private pensions and investments, uh, if they wish to remove that exchange rate risk, they would be able to switch their cash into the Scottish pound. Uh, if they have um, uh, uh, national savings and gilts and bonds, things like that, they can switch that into Scottish equivalents remove the exchange rate risk. If you're investing in stocks and shares, uh, then the market is in London and your funds are going to stay in sterling. There's absolutely no point whatsoever uh, in trying to convert a stocks and shares ISA into Scottish pound because all the investments are in London and your trading funds would need to stay in sterling because otherwise you'd be paying foreign exchange charges every time, every time you bought and sold some. Okay, we've got any more questions? Uh, well, there's one here in the chat about uh, a stock exchange. And obviously, 
at the moment, uh, I mean, there were plans from Michelle Thompson and another business partner to try and set up a stock exchange a few years ago, which unfortunately didn't go anywhere. Uh, but uh, I think becoming independent and introducing our own currency makes it much easier and more likely that we will get a stock exchange in Scotland because it, rem it removes a lot of the competition from London and it would then provide a means for either our companies or companies which operate in Scotland, uh, such as Diageo, uh, to have a local quotation. So a lot of companies, especially bigger ones, have quotes on lots of different stock exchanges. You don't have to restrict yourself to just one stock exchange. So Diageo could have a quote on the London Stock Exchange and they could have a quote in Scottish pounds on the Scottish Stock Exchange. So that way you could, you could then, going forward, you'd be able to build up a portfolio of shares that were quoted in Scottish pounds and valued in Scottish pounds. We have a question in the chat that I've just seen here, which is uh, asking about SWIFT. SWIFT is just the international interbank payments system. If you make international payments, you're already using SWIFT. That would be used going forward for payments between Scotland and England. So if you were trying to pay a supplier in England, uh, that would be an international payment uh, and it would, you'd set it up via, your, well, you wouldn't really notice what was happening, but you, know, you would just ask your bank to make an international payment and uh, that you would get a small fee for it, but uh, you know, it would go through via the SWIFT network. What would happen at the moment of independence, with everybody who is in Scotland at that time and who was entitled to a pension, uh, would they then qualify immediately? And what happens thereafter to people moving either into Scotland from the rest of the UK and or people from Scotland moving towards the rest of the UK? Where does their pensions switch over? What we need to establish is who is legally domiciled in Scotland as of Independence Day. So obviously uh, anyone who is designated as a Scottish taxpayer, you know, for the, if you look at your HMRC tax code and it's got an S in it, then you're a Scottish taxpayer, which means the HMRC consider you legally domiciled in Scotland. Uh, so all of those people would obviously transfer into the, have their national insurance records transferred into the Scottish state pension. Um, for everyone else, then uh, you know, we'd have to look at um, your residential address. Uh, you know, so that basically people who are not taxpayers are not registered, um, uh, currently paying national insurance, uh, or not in receipt of a, an existing state pension. So you'd look at the address of that person and decide whether the address was in England or Wales or Northern Ireland or Scotland, and the Scottish ones would then. Uh, be transferred uh, across. As I say, I think you, sh you should probably have to put some sort of, um, you know, you have to have been resident in Scotland for a year or something like that prior to independence. Otherwise, um, as I say, you, since it, it would be well advertised, I think that the Scottish pension was going to be increased, you could get people who were moving just because they wanted to catch. Of course, there's a lot of people who are in the fortunate position to have multiple houses. So could we have potentially multiple uh, multiple receipt of pensions. I fully understand what, you talk, what you're saying, but uh, you only have one national insurance record per person. So you know, it's, either in, it's either going to stay in the UK scheme or it's going to transfer to the Scottish scheme. And you, you're not going to be able to end up with two national insurance records. And I think for most people where they're legally domiciled is going to be quite clear from the tax database. 
So you know, if you if you are paying any sort of um, income tax or national insurance, that is going to identify where your legal domicile is. The only argument could be about people who are not paying any you know, any sort of um, uh, tax. Uh, you know, if it wasn't clear, you'd have to designate whether you were living in Scotland or England if you've got multiple addresses. We used to have stock exchanges in Scotland. We had one in Greenock here. Mm-hmm. Is there any way they can be set up before independence? I know, as I said, uh, Mich- Michelle Thompson, the MP, is very keen on getting a stock exchange up and running in Scotland, but uh, I think it'll be, it'll, as soon as it's clear that we're going to be a come independent, it'll be a much more interesting business proposition for people, and I think it'll happen quite quickly. They all closed down because they couldn't manage with the uh, competition from London. But central banks, can they be set up for a, an a independence? The, the Scottish Reserve Bank would be the Central Bank of Scotland and uh, the currency group has already done some basic planning for it, but uh, uh, we can do more of that prior to a referendum in terms of just a basic design. Uh, uh-huh. And uh, the work of actually building it needs to start the day after, in the, after the vote for independence. That's both in terms of getting legislation through Holyrood, but actually commissioning the IT systems and finding office premises and all of that sort of uh, uh, stuff. I have looked at various articles and things about how affordable Germany's pensions are, how affordable Italy's pensions are, and there's an awful lot of evidence out there that says a lot of these countries are moving to a situation where they are actually already paying in long-term unaffordable pensions. Isn't there a danger that we are effectively, as the SNP, committing to a European level of pension that on the continent they already know they can't afford. Well, certainly uh, with Germany, I, I mean, I don't think the German pensions are unaffordable. They, you know, prior to COVID, the German government was running a budget surplus, so they, you know, they, they could they, they could obviously easily afford to um, uh, increase expenditure without, uh, you know, without any problem if they wanted to. Um, the issue with pensions really is that um, it's always a sort of effectively an intergenerational. Uh, transfer and uh, nobody ever actually saves for a pension per se in that uh, uh, you know unless you were going to fill the garage with tins of baked beans and you know packets of bog roll and so on uh, what you're doing is relying on people working at the time when you want to be getting the pension handing over some of their income to you if you take the money out of the equation if I'm retired in 2040 and I want a car that is that that car has to be built by people working in 2040 who then don't get get the benefit of the car because I've taken it off them. The secret about all of this is that during your working life you have to invest sufficiently uh, that the cake is big enough after you retire to not only pay the next generation their own income but allow some of it to go to you. So you know have we built the roads and railways and hospitals and schools and factories and so forth uh, that allow the economy to be sufficiently large going forward that it can pay the incomes of those in work, the young and the elderly. And as long as we do that, then there isn't ever going to be a problem about paying pensions. Uh, if we fail to invest, and I think the UK has an issue here where you know, as a country we have rather failed to invest. If you don't grow the cake to the size necessary, then you are going to have a problem paying pensions. Going back to the state pensions, it's certainly an area that I've uh, struggled to get straight in my head. 
I got the feeling that there was a feeling of unfairness that they contributed all this years and the UK government wouldn't pay it back. So the way I've reconciled it in my head, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that while we're part of the UK, uh, we contribute to a big pot to fund the pensioners who are uh, receiving um, in receipt of the pension at the moment. Uh, and the way I thought about it is my contributions pay for Scottish pensioners. And so nothing changes when we become independent. If I'm still working, my contributions still pay for Scottish pensioners. And when I do retire, those working in Scotland will pay for my pension. So, you know, there is no savings. We pay our national insurance with the expectation that when we retire, those who are still working will fund us. So that money is being spent in Scotland. So it's not a case of the UK government owing anything to us with regards to pensions. Quite a good way of looking at it. But I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the only issue about a, a pension is do you get paid what you think you're, you know, what, what the agreement was that you would receive? It doesn't really matter who pays it. If, if you're entitled to £170 a week from the state pension, and as long as you get £170 a week, then, you know, does it, you know, does it matter whether there's, that's paid by the Scottish government or by uh, the Westminster government or the European Parliament or whatever? It's a bit of a sort of debating point, really. And I think the, the issue is that... Uh, People have to have the certainty that they're going to get what they, you know, what they believe their uh, entitlement is. And that has to be a cast iron guarantee. And the only one who can issue that cast iron guarantee for the state pension is the Scottish government. So they need to be clear in the campaign that uh, you know, everyone entitled to a state pension in Scotland will get in full on time what they are entitled to. If we just think of the National insurance contribution is just another tax. Well, it, it is just a tax. And uh, you know, personally, I would strongly suggest that the employer's national insurance element be removed entirely. Uh, because, uh, well, I think as from April, we get employers like my small company, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be paying, I think, 14.5% or something, um, maybe it's even 15%. Uh, of the weight of people's wages as employers' national insurance contributions, which is on top of the uh, 13 and a half or 14 percent or something that the employee is going to be paying. Uh, so the employer national insurance contributions is just a tax on employment, and uh, you know, if you put a tax on something, you generally get less of it. Um, that's why we put taxes on alcohol and cigarettes is to reduce the amount that people use. So you put tax on in, put a tax on employment, you're going to get less jobs and the wages will be lower for those who do get them. But there is another point here, which I see some people have been raising in the, um, the chat. National insurance is just another tax. It's slightly different to other tax because um, uh, what you get depends slightly on how many years you've contributed. But the general narrative that tax pays for things is wrong because it doesn't. And, you know, the money starts off by being spent by the state and state spending actually is what funds tax so you know the state spends it first and then they tax it and take it back the government can always buy whatever it wishes to buy because it just writes a check and spends it there are no circumstances where the governor of the bank of england would ring up the chancellor and say uh, mr chancellor your account is overdrawn today and unless you pay in funds by 4 p.m i'm going to bounce the checks it just doesn't happen it's actually illegal for the for the bank of england to refuse a government payment uh, so they can, you know, then the same thing would apply in Scotland that the 
they said that the Scottish Reserve Bank will always pay any instruction that the finance minister gives it. So, uh, you know, the, the only issue is about uh, controlling the economy and how much you need to tax back to avoid inflation. So how do you feel about that now? Do you think that it's fair for the UK government to have taken all our contributions over these years and not to have to pay us a pension? Are you convinced? Well, I'm still stuck with, that's not really fair. It's really kind of not fair. And then Scottish government um, takes it on. I like one of the people contributing. I thought she had a great explanation for how she'd rationalised it in her mind, which was she thinks, well, I paid national insurance all those years, which then paid Scottish pensions to the pensioners of the day, which is actually true. That's how the plot works. And now she's going to receive a pension from the contributions of people in Scotland. I like that way of thinking about it. It it leaves you with a a warm glow rather than a seething annoyance. (laughs) That's true. That's true. And um, I think you might just have convinced me there by reminding me of that uh, that, (laughs) that bit of input from her. Yeah, it was very good, actually. It was was very heartfelt, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Let's hope that the Scottish government actually starts to think like that. They, they, uh-huh. They've, um, I mean, I think the first minister did mention pensions as being one the subject of one of the, the the papers they're going to be bringing out. You know, in the over the next few months to help with the campaign. We know that the, there's a series of papers yet yeah. to come out from the government, and I mean, I'm I can't believe for a minute they're not going to do some proper research before they come out with those papers. But yes, we might it might be useful to do a follow-up session on on this show. If you do know anybody who is wrestling with the question of how you answer this pensions question, show them this video because it's a really, really good, not just the way Tim Ryder explains it, but I think what really makes it is the way you see the audience transform as the little light bulb goes on in their head and they go, ah, now I get it. Thank you. Yeah. been listening to the Indie Jigsaw Show, one of the Scottish Independence podcasts that the Indie Life podcast team produce. We bring you a podcast every week, often little extras as well. So subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and you won't miss anything. Also, Indie Life Extra YouTube channel because there's often little goodies there that we couldn't fit in the podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us, we're on Indie Life Podcasters at gmail.com or get us on Twitter at Scottish Indie Pod. Next week's podcast will be the July edition of Bits and Pieces. It's not as if there's any shortage of news. So join us for that and we'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening. Bye now.